Good morning. Would you join me in, in looking at uh, God's Word from the Gospel of Matthew? I'm going to be uh, reading from chapter 9 and just uh, three short verses. But what verses they are. This is, this is the Lord's Word. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And that is God's word. Uh, I think sooner or later, most modern people, probably now before even college or during college, they ask themselves, they come to a place in their lives where they ask the question, who am I? What am I? And based on that particular question and, and the answer that they arrive at, they begin to think, then what is my relationship? Uh, what is my role to the, to the place that I live? What is my relationship to the people that I'm surrounded by and the problems that they're afflicted with? So who am I? And what is, what is my role in this world? And I would suggest, uh, based on this passage and based on just being a Presbyterian minister, that there's probably nobody in the history of, of the world who had a greater sense of his under, a greater understanding of who he was than Jesus of Nazareth. And based on that understanding, nobody lived a life that was more passionate about the place, about the people, about the problems that he was surrounded by. And uh, this passage demonstrates that. And so what did he do with this new, with this understanding of him, of who he was and, and what he was uh, called to do? Well, simply he rolled up his sleeves and he went to work. And chapters 8 demonstrates the kind of selfless, hope-filled work that he brought to the people around him. And so in chapter 8, you, you read that he... He healed a paralyzed man, but he didn't just heal him physically, he healed him spiritually. He healed his soul. And then he, uh, and then he uh, looked for people who were hurting and who were lost. And he said, come, be with me. And the entire Gospel of Matthew was written by a man, Matthew himself, who was a tax collector, who was a despised individual in his community. And Jesus saw him, he was hurting, that he was lost. And he said, come and be with me. And I'll help you grow and change. And that's what Matthew did. And he was, of course, so inspired by that, he wrote all about it. Next, he Jesus gives a, a teaching on fasting, which if you think about it, miraculously, it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting teaching, which is a miracle unto itself. I'm not exactly sure why that's listed there in chapter 8, but that's what I conclude. And after that, he raises a, a, a young girl from the dead, and then he heals a sick woman. So you get this sense that he's just... He's working nonstop to bring healing and to hope to the people around him. And lastly, right before this passage, two things happen. He gives sight to a blind man, and then he looses the tongue of somebody who's mute. So he gives sight, and he opens the mouth of somebody. And in a sense, that's a teaching for the apostles that are sitting at his feet, and it's a teaching for you and I. And that teaching is simply this, to see and to speak. What do you need to see? What do we need to see? What did they need to see? 
They needed to see that his work was about to become their work. That the present work of Jesus was about to become the future work of the church. And, you know, if you've been around this church for a long time, I know this church was birthed in prayer. I know this, this church has been an answer to many prayers of the people sitting in these pews. But would you consider, first and foremost, this church was birthed by the prayers of the apostles. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray for more workers. And here we sit today. So what does it look like? What, what, what do we need to know about laborers in the field of the Lord? What's the job description of somebody who labors, uh, who works to extend the love of God to the people and the places and, the, and, and to be a problem solver in the community? I think it simply looks like three things. Uh, we need to see what Jesus sees. We need to feel what Jesus feels. And we need to do what Jesus does. We need to f- see the things that are uh, right under our nose oftentimes and which we often don't, don't uh, uh, truly recognize. We need to see the things that Jesus sees. We need to feel the way about, feel about those things the way that Jesus does. And then we need to simply follow him and do the things that he demonstrates. So first, see what Jesus sees. Uh, Jesus has been on the move. He's been in the towns, he's been in the villages, he's been in the synagogues. He's been everywhere, and from that vantage point, he has a very unique perspective. And basically, what he sees is he sees the state of the sheep and the state of the shepherds. And what do I mean by the state of the sheep? Why does he use that particular metaphor? That is not a uh, condescending metaphor. That is actually the most precious of comparisons. When he compares the crowds to the sheep. And the reason for that, of course, is that the sheep, maybe we don't know this as people who are not farmers. I'm not a farmer. I live in Manhattan. Uh, very interesting to know that the sheep were the most valuable of all the livestock. Every aspect of a sheep can be utilized. So they had tremendous value for the shepherd. Right? They were, every aspect could be utilized. They had tremendous monetary value. So they looked after them. They doted on them. They they uh, they cared deeply. There's a sense of security in that in the sheep. So they were valuable. They were also incredibly vulnerable. Why? Well, we know sheep don't have sharp claws. They don't have sharp teeth. Uh, they happen to be very tasty. Um, and that, coupled with the fact that they tend to get lost, is a recipe for disaster. And so, because they're valuable, and because they're vulnerable. The shepherd spent all of his time, all of his energy, knowing the sheep, feeding the sheep, leading the sheep, and protecting the sheep. So the sheep were valuable and they were vulnerable. The the sheep, you know, doted on them, protected them, not unlike a parent to a child. A friend of mine uh, was new to Manhattan, and he had a a, a four-year-old daughter, and one day he got a phone call from the preschool teacher and, they, and he said, Chance, my friend's name's Chance, he says, uh, she said to him, we've just returned from our field trip to Central Park. When we got back to the school, we did a count on the children, and we realized that we left Aya, your four-year-old daughter, in Central Park. So he's been in New York about two weeks. Uh, she said, this is the hardest call of my life. I need you to know 
We've, we're running down there. We've called the police. If you want to run to this location in the park, get there. We'll meet you there. But I have to let you know. They get there. Aya has uh, been there for about an hour and a half by herself. She was, uh, as you would imagine, disoriented. Um, she was safe, but she was disoriented, uh, confused, uh, scared. She started hanging out with some older kids, and somebody recognized that they didn't quite mesh. Um, and these older kids were not mistreating her, but they were playing, a, you might say, a little rough. So they arrived, and everything was, of course, okay. But you can imagine uh, the feeling of a parent in that situation. My friend Chance and his wife, they cannot tell that story without crying. Interestingly, they said the teacher cannot tell that story without crying. She's the shepherd. The shepherd, uh, their feelings around the sheep were one of tremendous, valuable. They valued them and because they knew how vulnerable they actually were. So, it's a precious, utterly precious comparison. Now, with that in mind, Jesus sets up that the, his, the, the crowds, the sheep, are not just valuable and vulnerable, but they're presently being harassed. They're helpless. And of course, you know what it is to be harassed. It's when somebody takes your weaknesses and they turn it on you. They begin to bully you. They begin to intimidate you. They begin to take advantage of you. So Jesus is saying there are people in need here, and there are people who are, have uh, who who are in places of power, who are in places of privilege, and they they consider these people who are uh, having problems as a, as a bother, as a nuisance. They begin to manipulate them. Why? So that their lives can actually be all the more comfortable. So they're they're being harassed in that sense, but they're also being they're also helpless. And that word here is an interesting word. It's a, it's an agrarian word. It's a shepherd word. And what it means, it's, it's, uh, denoting a physical posture of, a, of the sheep who in a particular age and stage of their life, kind of like a turtle, when they're on their back, they're unable to get up on their feet. And therefore, they're even more vulnerable. And what that means is in this particular helpless state, it's only a matter of hours. It's only a matter of days that if a shepherd is not present, that they will be killed. And so there's just this incredible sense of urgency here. And Jesus sees from his vantage point uh, how precious these people are and how precious the time is. So he recognizes the state of the sheep, but then very tellingly, very critically, he recognizes the state of the, of the shepherds. Now, he uses this language not just because it's a familiar, or this metaphor, not just because it's a familiar metaphor for people who live and work around livestock. He uses it because it's a biblical metaphor. He's saying, I've seen, he said, God has seen this before. And he's hearkening back to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34, where God, through the prophet Ezekiel, is judging the people of God. And he's saying, you were meant to know, to lead, to feed, and to protect the weak and the vulnerable, and yet you are not doing that. And it's a scathing criticism. And he says, uh, the prophet says this. He says, you've been, you've been feeding, the, uh, you've been feeding uh, yourselves off the fat of the flock. God says, you have not strengthened the weak. You've not healed the sick. You've not bandaged the injured. You've not brought back the strays or sought the lost. 
but with force and harshness you have ruled over them. They were scattered because they had no shepherd and, be, and they became food for every wild beast. And so as Jesus stands in reflection, he sees that and he says, Israel, you've not changed. You've not changed just as in times past. You're pretending to be shepherds. Now I know it's very, I, that's my job. I'm meant to be a shepherd. And I, to read this, uh, to read this passage and to study it, it just it really does send chills through me. There's a reason that Charles Spurgeon said, uh, "Of uh, you know, the harvest is great, but the workers are few." He says. That's the most troublesome passage in the Bible for me. Because there's such urgency, there's such enormity to the work. And we're always, in, in a sense, kind of in danger of pretending to be shepherds. But let's, let me just, as I encourage myself, let me just encourage you. It is far better to be imperfect shepherds than those who pretend to be shepherds. And we need to be able to see the difference. And here's why. Not because I'm bringing, you know, as a friend and scathing critique to this church by any means. We need to see the difference between what it is to pretend to shepherd versus being imperfect shepherds because our neighbors know the difference. They know when we're working hard but, but not doing it the best that we possibly could versus pretending and not doing anything at all. So, Jesus sees the state of the sheep, he sees the state of the shepherd. Now, what what does he do when he shows up on the scene? Why does he cause so much beautiful commotion? Because he's the true shepherd, of course. He knows, and he leads, and he feeds, and he protects. And the order is very, very important. Jesus knows because he spends time with the vulnerable and the weak. You know, he's known, of course, for his great speeches. He's known for his great words of wisdom. But Jesus is also known for being an incredible listener. You know, it's very easy to come and sit and give advice to people, no matter what situation you're in. Maybe it's at work. Far easier to, uh, to, uh, to give advice. I'm planning a church and I'm meeting with all these people. I'm getting a ton of advice. A ton. And it's all really good. But I have to sit and listen and take it in. And as I sit with the people in my neighborhood, and as I've lived in this neighborhood for about 10 years, but I've never been forced to listen like I have of late. And perhaps the most convicting thing is to sit with people of all ages and have them tell me, I don't, I am most touched not by what you believe, but that you actually care what I think. That you are actually willing to listen about my aches and my pains. That to me more than anything makes me think, I can go to that church. I may not believe what you believe, but I think you're going to treat me. You're going to love me well. And you know, studies show that people don't leave churches because of doctrine. They don't leave Christian churches because we have an exclusive faith, because we are, some of our doctrine is, uh, is not always, uh, you know, in line with the with modern times, they leave because they don't feel like they've been loved. An overwhelming amount, uh, according to, to recent surveys. So he knows people well, and because he knows them so well, he's such a good listener. He knows exactly what they need materially, materially, and he knows exactly what they need spiritually. So he's able to feed them. 
And then he's able to lead them. Very interesting. In ancient culture, sheep, or excuse me, shepherds led sheep by walking in front of them. Not by walking behind them. They walked in front of them because the shepherds were so good to the sheep that the sheep would just go wherever they went. They'd follow him. And the joke is, is that if you saw a shepherd uh, from behind, like leading the sheep from behind, it's not a shepherd, it's actually the butcher. So Jesus was a good shepherd. He, he knew them. He fed them what they needed. They trusted him and, they, and people would just follow him. And he would protect them. And of course, Jesus Christ laid his life down for sheep. That's the kind of sheep I want in my life. So, uh, <clears throat> Jesus can see the state of the sheep. He can see the state of the shepherds. So we need to see the state of, the, of ourselves as Christians. If you're a Christian in our modern times, let me tell you, you're a leader in the eyes of your community. They see you that way. You're meant to be that way. We're meant to be shepherds. We're seen as shepherds. And we need to see the state of the sheep. How are they doing? Are we knowing them, loving them, feeding them, uh, leading them, and protecting them? So it's not enough just to see, but we need to feel what Jesus feels. Uh, I did a prayer walk about three weeks ago in my neighborhood, and I live in a pretty diverse neighborhood. It has become, because of the, uh, this high line, this park, it's become uh, the fifth wealthiest neighborhood in Manhattan, which says a lot, right? It's also the, the neighborhood with the greatest disparity in income because the spine of that neighborhood has been the NYCHA housing, the Elliott and Fulton housing project. And so the housing projects there have been there for 80 years, and that area has been a, you know, a place of, uh, you, you might say, tremendous neglect. I was going to say desolation. It's been ignored uh, for decades and decades until two men decided, hey, let's take this, this elevated rail that's been uh, neglected and let's turn it into a park. And so they turn it into a park and it has become the uh, number one tourist attraction in all of New York. Eight million people a year uh, go to the High Line. Um, that's more than the Statue of Liberty. That's more than, than uh, the Freedom Tower. These guys, they just wanted to create a, uh, a park that blessed the community. And they each of them would say, we failed this neighborhood. We failed it. We wanted to bless it, and we've overwhelmed it. Um, and so I'm walking around areas where, in my neighborhood, that I see every day, but I don't see, see. And I don't really take in. And so we were praying for uh, the people in, in, in the housing projects and praying for particular corners and so on and so forth. And my prayers were at a very macro level. And I started listening to the people uh, who were praying with me. And their prayers were from the gut. They were prayers of the heart. They knew people. They knew situations. They didn't know just systemic things, but they knew individuals. And they had what Jesus has in this passage. They had compassion for the crowds. You know, compassion is the culmination of two words, pati and kum. And what that means is to suffer with, to suffer alongside. So Jesus just doesn't see the problems. Jesus' Jesus's heart breaks for the problems. And there's something that happens when your heart breaks for somebody else. You stop seeing yourself as a paternalistic 
uh, problem solver. And you start to see yourself as a brother or a sister helping somebody in need. Their problems are now your problems. You take on that burden because why? Because you have, you suffer with, you suffer alongside. Your heart breaks for them. And when your heart breaks, when our hearts break, we begin to care in a whole different manner. And as I, that began, as is beginning to happen to me and my wife, we're seeing <laughs> how intimidated we are by the work that's ahead of us. We're seeing the, the enormity of the work. We're seeing the urgency of the work. We're feeling like we're totally alone in the work. But Jesus doesn't just feel compassion. He also feels a tremendous sense of confidence. The harvest is plentiful. It's present and progressive. It is. You know, harvest, there is no... I don't want to be hyperbolic. Harvest take the hands, the work, the hearts of everybody in the community. It's family work. It's community work. I went to a college town that was in the middle of, of uh, you know, like a, an agrarian community. And during the summers, they would hire thousands, probably not, hundreds of college students. And for about eight weeks, we'd work all day and all night bringing in the harvest. Enormous work. Urgent work. If you don't do it now, you lose it. Enormous. Urgent. And you feel like you're all alone doing it. And Jesus is saying, whether you have a lot or few, if you go out there, you will bring harvest in. Just go gather it. Go out. I've done the planting. I've done the, the tilling. I've done the watering. It's in. Just go into these neighborhoods. Go into the places that are suffering. And you will gather what is precious. And it will bless you. You'll be blessed by it. And why? Why can we say that? Why does he say that? Because the Lord of the harvest is at work in the fields already. Take a panoramic view of your own life. The people you work with, your family, maybe the school you attend, the places you shop. He's saying, if you just consider those places, fields, you need to know, I'm already at work there. Just go and find the brothers and the sisters that are I have working in that field already. Help them, and they'll help you. So he's, Jesus feels uh, compassionate, but he's also incredibly confident. So we need to see what Jesus sees, feel what he feels, and then do what he does. Do what he does. And that's a, that's that can be pretty difficult, I know. <laughs> Let's just, at least for this passage, let me share the obvious. Jesus mixes some metaphor here. Now, when I mix a metaphor, I just chalk that up to my, my inability to teach very well. My, you know, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not very intelligent. That's usually what we think about when somebody mixes a metaphor. They're a little bit lost. When Jesus mixes a metaphor, we need to pay close attention. Right? He starts off talking about, uh, shepherds and sheep, and then he ends up talking about a harvest. And it, what he's simply saying is, the, the vulnerable who are so valuable are the harvest. When you go out and gather them, when you bring them in, contrary to this modern culture, they are a tremendous blessing. They will feed your congregation. They will feed your community in ways that you cannot possibly imagine. Go and bring them in. It's magical. 
It's magical to mix these two metaphors. Only in a kingdom do these, do, do these two things uh, actually come together for something that's beautiful. Go out, he says. So the first thing that he does is that he mixes this metaphor. And Jesus shepherds, uh, he says, go out and bring them in because in my kingdom, sh- sheep actually become shepherds. Right? Because of my love, my care, they grow so that the things that they were harassed by, the things that they were helpless by, actually become strengths for them so that they can help people who are vulnerable as well. Now, as I said, that's very, very difficult. Human beings are really hard to learn. We're not as uh, learning agile as we like to think that we are. You know, Wilt Chamberlain, people know Wilt Chamberlain still, right? Yes, show of hands. Wilt Chamberlain, arguably the greatest athlete who ever played in the NBA. And I won't go through his numbers, but his, you know, his stats were just off the charts. Uh, 100 points a game, averaged 50 points a game, averaged 20 rebounds a game. Um, and Wilt Chamberlain, uh, though, was a notoriously poor free throw shooter. And he, he just was very poor at it. And somebody came along and said, hey, you should try this other method. And this is the granny shot method. Granny shot method is underhand. He tried that for a, a partial season. And his shooting, his free throw percentage skyrocketed. He added, I don't know, like another nine or ten points to his scoring average. So he knew, wow, this is actually the right thing to do. This is, makes me a fuller, more complete player. But he was so embarrassed by his inability to shoot like everybody else in this sort of awkward granny shot that he stopped doing it. He refused to do it. And he lived at, at a lower level. And the reason was is that he was very, he cared so much what people thought of him. He was intimidated by uh, everybody's feelings about him. And so he basically capitulated to the crowds. And of course, that resonates with me. It's very hard to go against the culture. It's very hard to sort of take that leap and step over the line and say, hey, this is going to, this may even hurt a little bit. I may look awkward here, but it is worth it. It's absolutely worth it. And Mark and I were, and Leslie and I were talking about it last night. You don't get to the power of what Christians believe, the power of God's love without going through something that, that hurts. You know, you don't get to it without going through not avoiding, but going through a sense of, I may be put to shame here. I may be embarrassed here because I'm going to have to put myself out on the line. So that's what Jesus is calling us to do. That's why the laborers are so few. Because we're scared, we're intimidated, and we don't see the beauty or the power on the other side of it. You know, William Templeton was the Archbishop of England. And he said, you know, you tell me to write a, sh- a play by Shakespeare and I cannot do it. I'll fail. But what I need is if you were to say, I'll give you the spirit of Shakespeare. Then and only then could I actually put to pen and, sit and write the words that he wrote. I cannot do it on my own ability, but if, if you give me the spirit of Shakespeare, then of course I'll produce in the way that he produces. And of course that's the promise of the gospel. 
You know, Jesus is the good shepherd because he lays his life down for the sheep, down for the most vulnerable, down for you and I. And because of that, his spirit is then given to you and I. And so the fact that you and I are sitting here thinking about this, saying, this is plausible. I could actually live like this. is actually a testament that, there, that the spirit may be at work in you. Yeah, we can't write great plays on our own. We can't think about loving people more than we love ourselves or putting other people's needs ahead of our own without another spirit. It's that other spirit that turns sheep into shepherds. So uh, my favorite illustration, just by way of closing, is of a shepherd by the name of Archibald Brown. And Archibald Brown was the successor to Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon, of course, was a great preacher. He had a congregation of 5,000 people, like 20,000 people read his, his, um, his newsletter every week. And uh, Archibald Spurgeon was a very humble man and, every, every, and a very learned man and, and a, a man, an aristocratic man in, in England uh, about 150 years ago. And every week he'd walk into the ghettos of East London looking for sheep. And one day he came uh, upon a, a, a home. He was told to go visit a woman. She was there. She was uh, in her mid-twenties. She had two children who were three and five, and her sheep were caring for her. She was sick. She was dying of consumption. And Archibald Brown said, uh, where's your husband? And he said, she said, he, he, he leaves early in, in the morning, and often he doesn't come home. And he said, Miss, do you realize you're dying? And it came as a surprise to her. She said, am I really that bad? And he said, yes, you are. And he said, do you know anything of Jesus? And she says, I heard of him uh, when I was a child, but I haven't heard much of him since. And so he fumbled and he said, I I need to give her a sermon about uh, the great shepherd who can actually take her into his arms and care for her. And he struggled. Then he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a coin. And it was a penny. And he said to her daughter, he said, do you want this? And of course, this five-year-old girl saw this and she thought it was, you know, the greatest treasure in all the world. And she said, may I have it? Can I have that? And he said, it's yours for the taking. So she reached in and she grabbed it. And he said to, and, and Brown said to his mom, it's a sermon and a coin. Jesus is yours if you just ask. Excuse me, Jesus is yours if you just receive. So she did. Ten days later, uh, the story goes, delirious. She just kept saying, Jesus, you'll receive me, won't you? You'll receive me. And of course he did when she died. What does it mean to be a shepherd or a, a laborer at fields in the Lord? It's to to think of the sheep, those who are valuable and vulnerable, put their needs before us, and to be obedient, and to follow Christ who has done that for us too. I pray that for uh, the church that I'm about to pastor, and I pray that, of course, for Grace Presbyterian. May you continue to serve in very very faithful and fruitful ways. Thanks for having me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, no matter w- w- how we look at it, work is work. It's hard. And yet we recognize, Lord, that even 
uh, in the Garden of Eden at creation. Lord, you, ca- you created us to be laborers. You ca- created us to be creative people, to work, to have uh, stewardship over this creation. And we recognize that as part of the fall, that work is hard, that we often just are putting our own needs ahead of everything else, that we don't trust you or at work in our lives or in the lives of others. And yet you are working and redeeming to restore all of creation, Lord. Lord, what little time that we have on this earth, would you make it fruitful? Would you help us to be harvesters? That we would discover or rediscover the joy of seeing somebody come to know you for the first time. That their life might change. Let us recognize those people that are suffering, those communities that are suffering. And let us not be a kind of church that is neglectful of them. Lord, only in your kingdom are those who are helpless actually uh, the most valuable to us. Lord, we thank you, Lord, uh, for the ministry of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.